and welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. Today's podcast is hosted by GLD Director Ellen Lust and features Jen Murtazashvili, Associate Professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. She is also the Director at the Centre of Governance and Markets, a new interdisciplinary centre focused on analysing institutional diversity and performance around the world. Today's discussion centres on the relationship between national-level reforms, change and decentralisation in Uzbekistan and Afghanistan. As always, you can find more information about our guest, including links to their research, in the description below. We hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for joining me today. You have worked more on, well, we can talk about your, your sort of experience with Uzbekistan and Afghanistan, which I think are two areas where um, most of us know very little about, and you know an extraordinary amount. Um, and so I wanted to be able to talk today about um, how, how we can understand local governance um, stressors or contestation at the local level and how that maps into or, or shapes national level politics or is shaped by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that, that caught my eye was that in Uzbekistan there had been some local level demonstrations around demolitions and around development issues there um, at the same time as Uzbekistan is to undertaking national level reforms. So maybe you can just set the scene a little bit for us and mm-hmm. you know and 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 also I think it's it's useful for everybody to know your experience in Uzbekistan. So maybe mm-hmm. give us a, a bit of that and then um, help us to understand first the national level reforms that are taking place. Sure. Um, it's, a, it's a really important issue that's taking shape right now. Uzbekistan um, is the largest country in Central Asia and its borders touch all of the other countries in the region, including Afghanistan. And I lived there for five years from 1997 to 2002. I was in the Peace Corps and then I worked for USAID managing their democracy and governance portfolio. So I lived there for five years and after which I went back to grad school and I thought uh, uh, I'd write a dissertation on Uzbekistan and there was an uprising in 2005 against the government and I was unable to go back. I was unable to get a research visa to return and it's because it was one of the most authoritarian states in the world. And it was really down at the bottom of all of the global rankings, as government officials today point out. They're down there with North Korea, Syria, um, Venezuela. Some pretty really bad company. Pretty, pretty bad company in terms of authoritarianism. And uh, about two, three years ago, the dictator, Islam Karimov, who was just, just brutal, um, he passed away suddenly. And his successor, uh, Shavkat Mirziyoyev, came to power. And he began reforming things pretty rapidly. And it really surprised everybody because he was a long-term serving prime minister. Um, No one really knew what to expect, but everyone expected sort of continuity. And he's really opened up the economy and he's begun to open up the political system. And so what we're seeing happening in Uzbekistan, these land demolitions that are taking place are a really interesting manifestation of the government's desire to modernize and to provide housing for citizens. So you have this uh, growing population, uh, very young population, like you see throughout the Muslim world. And there hasn't really been any investment or substantial investment in new housing. Um, And so what we're seeing in cities throughout the country are really government-led investment projects. 
to try to build new housing. And some of this housing is very flashy, right? So we're getting some really shiny developments in downtown Tashkent. There's one in particular that's called Tashkent City that'll have a new Hilton Hotel and beautiful towers. And they demolish like three neighborhoods to build this new um, development. And then in all of the other cities in the country, you're now seeing Nukus City, and okay. you're seeing Karshi City, and you're seeing Andijan City. And so the regional capitals are sort of mimicking this kind of development that they're seeing at the center. So the demolition of these houses, and it's also happening in rural areas as well. Okay. Um, so in, in rural areas, there's also a housing crisis, and there's the lack of modernization and uh, in terms of infrastructure. And the government's providing resources to build new buildings, to build new housing, and this is also causing a great deal of contestation. In many ways, it's actually similar to the protests we've seen in China over uh, demolition of homes. And so individuals are promised a certain level of compensation. They're not given the compensation. They're not given new housing. And what we've seen over the summer is a series of protests against local government officials who were supposed to deliver on certain things they did not. And this has led to, you know, over the summer, a series of, of protests almost at the, at the exact same time in about three or four different cities. And that got the government's attention. And so does this, when you say it got the government's attention, now we're talking about the central, central government. government's okay. attention. Okay. Right. And, and do people at the local level, do they think of this as only being about their local government or do they think about this as being about the center as well? So that's a really good question. And I wish it's one I could answer. Mm -hmm. uh, but unfortunately, we don't have a lot of data to, to tell us what, what people think. What yeah. people think. Yeah. I think it's probably a combination of both. But what you see the center doing is trying to blame the local government officials and uh, we've seen this remarkable turn of events where um, it was in August, President Mirziyoyev had this you know, um, teleconference with all of the provincial governors. Wow. And he had them on, on television and he's yelling at them and screaming at them saying, you've shamed me, you've shamed our country, you, you're using my name and my reputation to, to uh, demolish these homes, and you were supposed to give these people compensation. And there was this one um, in the city of Khorezm, which is in the far western part of Uzbekistan, there were these photos of, I mean, well not just photos, but real life, of people living in tents in a, in, a, in a major city. And so it looked like, to, to Uzbeks, it looks like this is Afghanistan. These right. people are living in tarps and refugee camps. And this is, a, this is not a small town. And this goes over, over national television. Over people national are seeing television. this everywhere. And, and it okay. also goes on the international media. Wow. And um, this is a huge, so on the, on the one hand, I think see this is, you know, it's, it, the government's not delivering, the government's overstepping, it's um, not executing what it promised to people. Um, but on the other hand, I see something enormously positive coming out of this, and that's the ability of citizens to feel comfortable to raise their voices. And, you know, in the beginning, we talked about how Uzbekistan was really down at the bottom of the barrel in terms of rankings and all these political freedoms and so forth. So for people to feel empowered to take videos of their governors, uh, there's this one famous scene, it was in a, it was in a rural case where uh, there was a small business owner um, who had just taken out a loan to renovate a shop. And the, uh, there was a village modernization program that was going to take place in his community called Abod Kishlok. And they were going to demolish sort of the center of the village and build a new sort of model village with a 
shops and, and a new uh, community center and so forth and with some new housing and this small business owner stands in his shop and he says do not tear this down I just took a huge loan for this and you see the deputy uh, governor of the district in a bulldozer and he says get out get out get out I want you to you know Right, you're, right. You're, your gone. Exactly. You're going, and he says, "No, you're going to have to take yeah. me with you." Wow. Uh, and then this small business owner gets into the bulldozer, douses the deputy governor with gas, and lights him on fire. Thankfully, he just had very minor burns; did not come out hurt. Um, but the government, but the government didn't punish. I, I'm not sure. I think he ended up in a psychological war. They put the shop owner. The shop owner. Wow. I don't know where he, but it didn't, they, the government didn't go after this individual and his family as they would have in the past. The president castigated the deputy governor and the, the provincial governor for letting this kind of thing happen. Wow. And so that's a major turn. On the other hand, the, you know, the, the president has made, the, he's criticized these officials for doing it, but he's appointed all of them. Right, right. So there's no local elections for local, for governors. Everyone's right. appointed by the center. And I think there's only so many times the president can do this, right, before yeah. he loses his credibility. This thing, this continues to happen. And I don't sense that it's going to stop right. um, when these things happen. Um, he's going to find himself in, in, in trouble. In, in trouble. Yeah. yeah. But do, I want to come back to that point in a second. But first I want to understand why is it that they're not sort of giving the payments and that they're not, I mean, so another way to solve it is that you really do re, you know, reimburse people. You really do make sure the funds are transferred and people feel like they're comfortable and that they're actually moving up. So what are the constraints that are, are explaining why they don't just do that? So that's, that is a really good question. Um, I think some of it is corruption. And that's come out of this, that these governors who are given the compensation, or it's the small, it's the developers who are supposed to be working with the government, um, don't pay, or the money goes into someone else's pocket. People are promised new housing, okay. and you know, on the edge of town, but the housing that's developed is terrible and almost uninhabitable, or often not complete. Okay. And that's okay. actually what happened in this in this one town in Chorezm, that there was no place for these people to go. They were promised new new, new housing and nothing happens. So I think when you have such a centralized system, and it also looks like there are these private developers who are making money and they've got government connections, and, and it doesn't look good, right? right? What's the status of decentralization? You've mentioned that we have a centralized system a couple of times, and, and obviously you can only blame you can only blame sort of local leaders and you know so many times, but also only really blame them if you don't have that much of a connection to them, right? I mean, it's much easier if, if they were elected local leaders, and then of course you can say, okay, what is this? But the very fact of saying my name doesn't look good when you do this, right? Yeah, you know, it sort of emphasizes the extent to which they are connected, right? So, can you just give us a sense of the sort of the status of decentralization? Right, and then what we might expect, you know, does it end up being that you have to really decentralize because you end up with, you know, this kind of tension between I'm blaming you and it, yet I appointed you? Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's a really good question. Um, in terms of the status of decentralization, the country has really not reformed any of its bureaucratic or administrative structures since the fall of the Soviet Union. So what you see in Uzbekistan is essentially the Soviet system. Okay. Um, except without the party apparatus. Um, so you see all central government officials, uh, uh, subnational officials appointed by the capital, 
and that's provincial governors. And then at the district level, which is the third tier of government, mm-hmm. uh, they're all appointed by okay. the center as well. Wow. And so mayors are all appointed. There are no elections for any local officials. And no local councils that are... No local councils. So there are these mahalas, which are uh, traditional, customary forms of governance at the community level. Uh, The government formalized those. Um, And the Soviets began to do it lightly in, you know, beginning in the 50s, 60s, 70s. They forgot about them for periods of time. But in the 90s... President Karimov used, he formalized these in a very serious way um, and uh, created leaders of these, formal leaders. These were very informal um, village organizations. And he created a bureaucratic structure in each village. According to the Constitution, these are self-governing organizations. And you see these across the post-Soviet space. The Soviets created these quote-unquote self-governing systems of governance that were not they're far from self-governing. Yeah. Uh, so the Mahalas were technically self-governing, and then they created a bureaucratic structure with a leader, a head of a women's committee, okay. um, an accountant. And then beginning in the late 90s, they created this position of postpone, which in Uzbek means sort of defender of the people, which okay. was a KGB, basically. Okay. A person who okay. would report... And so this created... The people now being the state. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So it created a lot of tension and then really led people to go underground. Okay. So the Mahala still plays this really important social function, but they almost became like a parallel Mahala Mm -hmm. in each community. What President Mirziyoyev has done is he's taken away a lot of those police powers the Mahalas had. He eliminated the position of the postpone. And he wants these mahalas to become more active in issues of social provision, okay. like development councils, yeah. for example. Um, but people don't trust them very much. They're seen as corrupt um, because they've benefited so much from the centralized system. Of course, they've been responsible for reporting on people. Right. And I've had mahala leaders tell me, you know, I look around and I see who's drinking and I see who's right. not behaving right. morally. Yeah. And so it's sort of about creating order in a sense. It's about creating yeah. order, but also... Who's, you know, who's going to the mosque too yeah. much, right? And that was sort of one of the major concerns of the government at that time, beginning in the 90s, was the rise of, the potential rise of extremism. So there's not been much decentralization. So going back to your question, um, there are not a lot of levers for people to push. Mm-hmm. And so they're using social media, they're using the internet to, to raise concerns. And that's been really the surprising thing, is the government hasn't shut any of it down. Um, they're using the information from social media to you know, call these officials to task. But on the other hand, as you pointed out, they're all appointed by the president. There's only so many times he can sort of play this, this, card. Uh, this, this yeah. card with them. So it'll, now, a couple of years ago, uh, President Mirziyoyev introduced a new um, a series of administrative reform, an administrative framework for potential reforms. Okay. And it included the election of governors. And he made, a sev- he made several speeches about the importance of having elected governors. Nothing's moved forward on that. I don't know if anything will move forward on that, but he's talked about the need to create local accountability. He's made governors sort of the boogeyman okay. Okay. in in his uh, government. So if anything bad happens, he blames them, which, you know, I've interviewed several governors, and they'll say, look, like, uh, we don't really know how to play this government because we, on the one hand, we know that, we have to show problems now. We have to talk about challenges. It can't be like the old days where we just pretended that there was nothing bad happening. This president wants to see what the challenges are. But we don't know if we're going to get blamed for them. 
It's a yeah. fairly precarious position. Very precarious. So one of the points yeah. that you just raised, I think that's really interesting, is how do you decentralize and how do you sort of create sort of a stronger local um, local bodies when you already have such low public trust in these institutions and the mahalas? Mm-hmm. Um, so you may not be able to answer that, but what, what kind of, what thoughts do you have regarding that? So I, I, it's, it, it's a really good question, and, and I think we're beginning to see uh, changes in this area, and the easy answer is that you change the people and you change the rules. Um, so for, for a long time, you couldn't be the director of a mahala if, unless you were vetted by the government. Okay. And so for all intents and purposes, these people were appointed by the district governor. There's been a change in the legal framework that allows now for direct elections of mahala leaders. And so this summer, for the first time, the government actually supported ballot box selections. I wouldn't okay. call them free and fair. Um, you know, people were debating, was this person really vetted by the government? Were these independent? There wasn't a lot of lead time. There were no political parties involved. But what I'm beginning, we're beginning to see in Uzbekistan is sort of the change in the framework that's going to allow, I think, for greater participation. Either it's going to be window dressing or it's going to be something more Something meaningful. really means, yeah. I don't think anybody knows. I don't think the government knows. I think the government's sort of seeing how this all goes. And the government's the one that's talking about democracy. Okay. It's not donors. Donors know not to push this, right? Um, I think a lot of lessons have been learned from the 90s and all of the transitology. And the donors aren't talking about democracy. They're talking about human rights, not necessarily talking about democracy. The government is bringing this up. And so... Um, these elections were held. They didn't really make the news. We don't really know a lot about about what happened. So that's not actually a positive sign. Right. Uh, right. We want to know what happens. We want to know who's elected. We and people to, need to know what happens. People need to know yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Um, you did see some reports on like social media of real contestation and people fighting about who should be elected, which was positive, but it wasn't systematic. And... Um, you know, these are not really the, the sources of local governance right now. Um, in terms of broader decentralization, uh, it looks, you know, the, the government looks to be making some moves towards fiscal decentralization, some okay. limited fiscal decentralization. Um, but if these government officials at the subnational level could be elected, it would make a difference. It would make a huge difference. Yeah. I want to switch gears for a minute because you also are really an expert on Afghanistan, and I have so little chance to talk to, to experts on Afghanistan. I'd like to, to get your thoughts on how decentralization and the reform process fit together there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, the status of it. It seems to me that it's, you know, from, from our discussions earlier, it seems quite centralized, very much like Uzbekistan. And of course, you know, it's been in a long-standing conflict, and um, so maybe you can help us to understand the, those processes. Mm-hmm. It's actually, you know, I had uh, so many years of experience working and living in, in former Soviet republics that when I came to Afghanistan, actually, after I couldn't get into Uzbekistan in 2005, that I began to understand that the Afghan system of government was very heavily Sovietized. Okay. In fact, I'm writing a book right now with Mohammad Qadam Shah, who just got his PhD from the University of Washington Law School, um, who wrote a fabulous dissertation on public finance reform in, in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, brilliant young scholar. And um, I began to see these these Soviet, really heavy Soviet influence on the Afghan administrative system. Okay. And I, you know, doing some research, I began that the, you know, everyone thinks the Soviets began their influence in 79 when the invasion actually began much earlier than that in the 50s. The Soviets, uh, the Afghans began five-year plans 
And um, I think there's a really interesting story coming out of this book project. It's called Built to Fail. Okay. Um, and it's the story of why the state building efforts have not succeeded in Afghanistan. And we actually point to the fact that there was such continuity. There was no effort to reform the bureaucracy, the administrative structures, and everything remained so highly centralized in a society that's so de jure. Uh, de facto decentralized. Mm -hmm. And so what you see in Afghanistan is an enormous gap between the de jure rules and the de facto rules. And as we know from Douglas North and from Eleanor Ostrom is that this this presents the real challenges in development. And I would argue that to some extent, although to a lesser extent, this is the same issue that we're seeing in Uzbekistan is this gap. Okay. Um, Okay. But that gap is even hidden because a lot of civil society in Uzbekistan over the years moved underground. But going back to Afghanistan, the, the real issue there, and I think the, the number one political issue is decentralization. And if there was a move towards greater decentralization, local decision making, Afghanistan is the exact same situation. All governors are appointed by Kabul. All district governors are appointed by Kabul. All mayors are appointed by Kabul. This is, what, 20 years after quote-unquote democratic reforms have been introduced. Sure, you know, everyone gets excited about seeing blue ink on fingers for elections for a very strong executive and a very weak parliament. Um, Which, of course, also means that those elections are so very high stakes. High stakes. Right, which, you know, it opens all sorts of doors and and really uh, increases the incentives, exactly. shall we say, for corruption exactly. and for that's electoral really issues. Yeah. That's yeah. a really good point. And that's why you see so much corruption associated with them, so much violence associated with them. And, you know, with this past presidential election that happened uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I've argued that that our election probably should have never taken place yeah. because it just under, uh, we cannot conflate elections with democracy. Yeah. And just because you're going through this exercise doesn't mean this is democratic at all. Voter turnout was at a record low. They're saying less than 20% of the Afghan population actually participated in these elections, and the stakes are so high. And, and you know, Western NGOs and organizations get so excited about elections, they want to support them. And I, I think we need to remember that Western support of these elections actually undermines the democratic cause. Right. Um, but in Afghanistan, you do see that this, the insurgency is very regional. And I really strongly believe that without greater decentralization, you're not going to solve the peace process. If there was uh, decentralization of authority, people could integrate the Taliban or, or Northern Alliance or whoever is the major political players. And there really aren't national political parties in Afghanistan. Is the fear, though, that if you have the sort of greater decentralization, that areas that are under the Taliban, which is, if I mm-hmm. remember correctly, is at least at least a, a plurality, but I mean, it's a, it's a fairly large right. or yes. maybe even the majority of the actual geographic space mm-hmm. in, in Afghanistan, would then be actually under that under the Taliban. I mean, is there a, a fear that the more you give to local powers, the more likely that you undermine the sort of uh, the reform process in terms of the social reform process that people have been been sort of promoting as well? Right. So the bottom line is that, can it get any worse? <laughs> well, there's that right? one, yes. I mean, so let's, let's look at reality as it is. It already is de facto partitioned. And so one of the big critiques that people make, uh, you, know, you hear Afghan politicians, if you ever say the, the dirty word of federalism or decentralization, which have been, these are words that have been abused by politicians. So I, I'm not advocating sort of a political platform or anything for federalism, you can't even use that word in Afghanistan. It means ethnicity. Right. Right. But decentralization is also a different thing. 
allowing for greater accountability. There's this, but you know what Afghans will tell you, and Afghan politicians will tell you, if you have that, you, if you have that, the country will fall apart. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. It's falling it, apart. It's yeah. falling apart. So yeah. um, are you creating sort of this, um, it, it becomes a myth, right? So this has never been tried. And it is de facto decentralized. So why not just recognize the country as it is, and but central leaders and donors in Kabul have a vision. Yeah. And they keep doubling down on this vision. And that division is so far from reality on the ground. And I think this explains this huge gap between these two worlds, explains why we see continued conflict. And unless you resolve this political issue, you're never going to get people who are opposed to the Taliban into the peace process because the stakes are so high at the central level. Right. The stakes are so high, it's a winner-take-all system. And so they're fearing that under a plurality that's you know a Taliban or a Pashtun or someone these are code words right yeah. might get elected and that will be very bad for people of these minority groups well if you give them greater if you weaken the power of the president now what president ever wants to give up power right, right. that never right. happens and this president in particular Ashraf Ghani is not known for uh, <laughs> accommodating local right. interests he's known as having a very strong hand mm-hmm. um, so I think this is a serious issue that policymakers haven't looked very closely at and they sort of push this off as you know after there's a peace agreement I would argue that it has to come before the peace agreement that no one's gonna feel comfortable in a peace agreement especially the minorities unless they have some guarantee that they can have some control over what happens in their communities. And also, I mean, it gets back to this, um, the stakes are not just about the fact that you control the country. It's really also that you're controlling the country in a place where there is so much donor funding. So we really are looking at, you know, at what point can you start to um, let that you know, those funds are let those become under sort of greater control as well because people feel also very left out. Right? Exactly. That's, that's part exactly. of the issue. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we know from the political science literature that decentralization and federalism, they have sort of mixed yeah. um, mixed let, outcomes. Mixed yeah. outcomes in different places. And there's a big question about their level, you know, appropriateness for developing countries. But you look at Afghanistan, I'm like, can it get much worse? So the issues of corruption, the issues, you know, all these things that are associated with decentralization, uh, or at least that scholars find in some cases are associated with decentralization in Afghanistan. It is so corrupt. So maybe it's time to try something else. The one last thing I want to turn to in terms of of, um, thinking about both cases, and this is also because you're an expert on this, is the role of traditional authorities or sort of, if we can think about it, governance beyond the state institutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because in both Afghanistan and Uzbekistan, at least it's my understanding that they're they're quite strong. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you're talking about decentralization, we really are talking about state structures. That's correct. And then thinking about how that fits into... um, into contexts where there's a lot of the power that really is in the non-state arena. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how should we think about that? How can we understand that? So when I think of Central Asia, I think of you know scholars who are writing on Central Asia often focus, focus on authoritarianism or Islamic extremism. I think the region's greatest asset lies in communities and the ability of, commu- the ability of communities to overcome issues of collective concern. This is often neglected, and often scholars look at you know, traditional authority, it's bad for democracy, it's bad for women, 
but it, it provides a forum for people to come together and solve problems. And they're very effective at doing this, even in Uzbekistan, where you have the formal mahala structure, which has become bureaucratized, but you also have an informal system, the informal mahala with the elders, um, who are often very young. And this is actually something I found in Afghanistan. They have a title, White Beard. And White Beards is this sort of common name, actually. I'm I'm working on a paper right now about White Beards. Um, And I argue that this is the form of customary governance throughout Central Eurasia. And you see it among the Pashtuns, this, this title. A white beard is you find it among Pashtuns and Tajiks in Uzbekistan, in Tajikistan, in Uzbekistan, in Kyrgyzstan. And uh, so this is sort of a social, you know, it's an organization um, that governs community life. Okay. And often white beards can be women. I was going to ask you <laughs> if, this is a, if this is all male yes. or no. Oh. Okay. And they can be quite young. Okay. Even in Afghanistan, they would say, oh, here's our elder and this 26-year-old. So your white beard needs neither I mean, have a beard nor know, for it to be white. <laughs> it's just a title that people use, right? right? right. Um, and they're not always elders. So these organizations uh, have been treated very differently by the governments across these states. Um, but, you know, in Afghanistan, governments in the 70s tried to co-op them. Uh, they've tried to, the Taliban, execute these uh, village leaders. And okay. many, they did this in the 90s and they're doing it again because these are legitimate authorities and they challenge the religious authorities. They're less interested in going after the government officials. That's very symbolic. But when you go after the village elder who has legitimacy in the community, that's how that you means. intimidate and demonstrate your rule to people. Um, so you're challenging that kind of authority. So these, these leaders and have enormous social support. I think in Afghanistan it was a huge missed opportunity to work with um, to more work closely, with them more closely, or even just give them space. Yeah. What the international community tried to do is replace them, and that really undermined their authority. It, it, they flooded a lot of money into communities, trying to build parallel structures, and I think that created a lot of opportunities for more corruption right. and for yeah. a diffused authority. And the government really doesn't know how to deal with it. So the very heavy centralized government thinks these things are really bad, need to be eliminated. Yeah. You know, there's sort of a backwater. Um, but as we know, people aren't turning to the government. People don't have a lot of trust in the government. And I think that's what you're seeing in both contexts, right? And it's, something, it's a global phenomena, too. Yeah. So I think this speaks to really what we're seeing around the world is a massive distrust in formal government institutions. People are exiting from the state. And um, they are devising or reinventing or relying on old institutions while they're creating new ones. So it's a really fascinating time to be looking at governance issues. You're seeing the resurgence of traditional authority throughout the world, while at the same time you're seeing things like cryptocurrency and blockchain being used to solve problems. And these become governance solutions. People are finding so many different ways to get around the state. So this has been super fascinating, and I, I, you know, I think that one of the things that we'll look forward to as your center develops, especially in the work that comes out of it and the work that comes out of your your research moving forward as well, is just a better understanding, a continued better understanding. You've done a lot of great work, um, and we'll make sure that that's available. People can look at that to sort of your 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 bios and find your work on the on the website. But um, yeah, I want to thank you for taking time to talk today because it's. This is just really great. Thanks, Ellen. Thanks for the great questions. Thank you. Thanks for everything that GLD does. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>